So good afternoon. Um, for those of you who don't know me, and I actually see some faces out there I don't recognize, I'm Mark Israel, and for a long time I was the Cancer Center Director here, and uh, I'm uh, back um, in particular because uh, Damien Almiron, who is one of your colleagues and um, so forth, defended his thesis um, yesterday and uh, is now Dr. Almiron, and we're pleased to have you. Um, his outside examiner is going to be our um, grand round speaker, and I'll have a few words um, about Ken in a moment. But um, first, I, I want to read the conflict of interest statement, which I know you're all familiar with. But Dr. Aldape does not have any financial interests, does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device, is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And please, all of you who want CME credit at the end of the uh, presentation, please get the activity code outside in the corridor. So it's a particular pleasure for me to introduce uh, Ken Aldape, uh, um, who's our uh, grand round speaker today. Uh, Ken uh, was um, essentially a postdoctoral fellow, research fellow, while he was training in pathology at UCSF in my laboratory at UCSF before I came here. Ken's history is uh, very Bay Area-centric. He's a Stanford undergrad, uh, UCSF medical school, internship residency, uh, pathology and neuropathology fellowships, um, and uh, really was um, you know, a very important person in the life of our laboratory for a long time. And uh, then uh, Ken remained at UCSF, was wildly successful early on as new technologies allowed people who had access to clinical specimens to really ask new questions and take on uh, opportunities to elucidate issues around cancer biology that otherwise were not tractable. And uh, that success was recognized by Ken's moving um, to a endowed professorship ultimately at MD Anderson, where he was the chairman of the Department of Pathology um, for some time, and then on to lead a brain tumor center at the University of Toronto, which um, is just a phenomenal facility and has a deep commitment to uh, neuro-oncology and neurology. And then uh, very recently, right now, is in the process of moving to the NIH to become chief of the uh, laboratory of pathology there, which is also the department that does uh, anatomic pathology and surgical pathology and really has had a long history of leaders in pathology as their chiefs. And so Ken's joining this uh, remarkable um, uh, what series of highly successful pathologists making very important contributions to um, medicine is so very appropriate, and um, I'm so pleased to welcome him here. I got a chance to look at his CV. He's on numerous advisory committees and scientific advisory boards, almost 300 publications, and uh, it's just exciting to uh, learn all the different areas in which he has impacted that, some of which I didn't even realize, and I thought I read the literature. So um, without further ado, Ken. 
Thank you, Mark, for that very, very generous uh, introduction. You know, I will say, um, you know, was in, the, in the early 1990s, I was this very green clinical fellow in pathology and neuropathology, and Mark graciously took, took me into his lab and really, I think, turned me from a physician to somebody who at least had, you know, started to think in, in a scientific way. And so I'm, I'm always be indebted to you, Mark, for, for, for that. And it, it's, um, it, it's, it's really good to be back here to, to, to see you and to, to meet um, one of your mentees who is, as Mark said, um, uh, did very well in his, in, in his exam. So we're looking forward to great things from you, Damien. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about um, this. This will be a sort of a translational uh, talk um, about um, how we can move some molecular things that we're doing um, in, um, in, in the research realm in terms of genomics and epigenomics into at least into, into the concept where we can at least think about applying them clinically to help how we, how we um, classify and manage patients with, uh, with, with brain tumors. So I'll hope to describe a, a few things in that direction that I think um, are, are very interesting and I think are very exciting and, and if, if I could say um, perhaps, uh, you know, can form a, a paradigm shift on how, how pathology is done in terms of the classification and diagnosis of cancer. Uh, unfortunately, I have nothing to disclose. Um, so uh, I'll talk about a, a few things. Um, first is some work we did on, on TCGA. You've all heard of TCGA. Uh, we were part of that when I was at when I, would, uh, I was at MD Anderson. And how we we uh, use things like TCGA multi-platform analysis to help us understand uh, a new kind, a new way of classifying brain tumors, especially gliomas, that wasn't based on how they look under the microscope. Um, I'll talk a little bit about how some of that work um, was, was related to the WHO classification, which is the Bible of how pathologists, um, uh, the Bible that they use uh, to help to, uh, define these, these specific entities that, that are um, acceptable in, in the realm of clinical diagnosis. And then I want to sp talk about a specific, specific example of molecular pro profiling, epigenetics, DNA methylation profiling, how that has, has some unique features that can help us as pathologists classify tumors more accurately. And so I'll start with a problem. And so here's, the, here's one problem. So we, we, the most common um, you know, intrinsic neuroepithelial tumor that we deal with are the gliomas, the diffuse gliomas. These, these are the, the brain tumors that are, that are, that are killing patients. And um, the, the diffuse gliomas, the grade two and the grade three tumors, can be classified. Uh, you, you have six choices. Uh, if you see a, a diffuse glioma, uh, you've ruled out glioblastoma. You've got six choices: uh, astrocytoma, oligodendroglioma, and then this, this middle entity, oligoastrocytoma. And they, they can be either of grade two or, or grade three. And this is all fine on paper. You know, you sort of pick one. You look at the case. You pick one, and you make a diagnosis. Next case. But the, the, the problem is that there's very poor inter-observer concordance among these entities. You take a tumor that's called one thing, and, and the next pathologist might, may not call it the same thing, the same tumor using the same WHO classification, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's the problem. And, you know, it really relates to how, how we classify tumors. Harvey Cushing, um, who's, who's not only a great neurosurgeon, but helped uh, uh, start how we classify these tumors, you know, had this algorithm here on how, we, how, we, how tumors are classified. 
And, you know, we, we see these terms that are still in use today, medulloblastoma, glioblastoma, ependymoma. So this, this is nearly 100 years ago uh, that the, this classification was developed. And it, 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 in some sense, although it's been refined with experience, it hasn't changed so much. And the question is, can we use modern molecular techniques to help us um, evolve in that sense? So, you know, we, here's some pictures. I'm a pathologist, so we, we can show a few H&E pictures. On the left is oligodendroglioma. These are classic examples that no neuropathologist would have a problem with. On the right is astrocytoma. Again, these are textbook cases that no one has a problem with. The oligodendroglioma has a so-called fried egg artifact. Uh, astrocytomas have so-called gemistocytic cytoplasm, et cetera. Again, th these are no problem, but these are not the cases that we're seeing all the time. In fact, most cases are not as easy as this. And sometimes we see cases like this that have intermediate features. And this is where the so-called mixed oligoastrocytoma designation came up because, in a sense, it doesn't look exactly like an astrocytoma or an oligodendroglioma. But the problem is, you know, what's the biology of this tumor? We, we know what it looks like under the after you've seen it with a red dye and a blue dye, but what is the biology of this tumor? And, and the problem is that we're classifying these things not according to a biological basis. And so histopathology is really not straightforward in these cases. And this was recognized, again, back in the old days um, when, when neuropathology was, was just starting in, in, in the 1920s, talking about how it's difficult to classify these. And there's m many papers, including this one, that, that shows that diagnostic concordance among the diffuse gliomas is not very good. And here's one example of that. The, the, this is a clinical trial from the ERTC on anaplastic oligodendroglioma. This was a, a practice-changing clinical trial that showed chemotherapy was effective in anaplastic oligodendroglioma. So the, um, the investigators, the pathologist, uh, Max Kroos, Kroos, took 100 cases from this trial. And to be in this trial, the local pathologist had to have called it either anaplastic oligo or anaplastic mixed oligoastro. And so then he said, okay, I'm going to show this to 10 pathologists and ask the pathologists blindly what their diagnosis is. And here are the results. Reviewer one to reviewer, I guess there were nine reviewers. Reviewer one to reviewer nine. And you can see, although the top two diagnoses, anaplastic oligodendroglioma or anaplastic oligoastro, that had... That, that was the local pathologist review to, to get into the trial. You can see that the diagnostic concordance, just looking at the numbers, is, is not that great. And in fact, if you look at reviewer number nine, um, that it, it, only half of the cases that, that were in the trial, this re particular reviewer would have called eligible to be in the trial. Um, fully 50, 49 of the, of the 100 cases, this particular reviewer would have called ineligible. So the, these are... Neuropathologists who are at the cutting edge of diagnostic histopathology, and they can't agree using the H&E slide. So that that's really the problem. And so, you know, what what are some of the of the advances that that, that have occurred to help us resolve this problem? One of the biggest advances um, in the past 10 or 15 years, I think, was was this paper here from the Kinsler and Vogelstein lab that identified this uh, mutations in this, uh, this Krebs cycle enzyme, uh, isocitrate dehydrogenase 1, IDH1, where um, they identified in a subset of glioblastomas that IDH1 was mutated in these tumors. And they showed uh, in, this, in this paper that the, the patients whose tumors were mutated for IDH1 had an improved prognosis uh, compared to patients whose tumors were not. 
uh, mutated for IDH1. But th that's not so important as the fact that, that IDH1, since this paper, has, has been shown to really be the, the divider of two classes of gliomas, uh, both in the, the diffuse gliomas, but they're really, although, although under the microscope they look the same molecularly, they're, they're extremely, extremely different. IDH, uh, as you all remember from your medical school biochemistry days, is in the Krebs cycle. Um, and it cat catalyzes the formation of alpha-ketoglutarate from isocitrate. And there are three flavors to it. Mutations normally occur in, in gliomas and other tumors in IDH1 and sometimes in IDH2. And so it's an interesting uh, mutation, an interesting uh, biochemistry. I'll, I'm not a biochemist, but I'll show you a little bit of biochemistry here where the, the IDH mutation always occurs on the same codon. It's not, it, it, and it, it, it gives the enzyme a new function. Instead of uh, making alpha-ketoglutarate, the, uh, the IDH132H or IDH130 codon 132 mutation, IDH1 or 172 and IDH2, makes it turn into 2-HG or 2-hydroxyglutarate. So it further converts the alpha-ketoglutarate into 2-HG. And this innocent-looking molecule, 2-HG, is probably the cause of diffuse glioma in, a sub, in the, the subset of patients who have IDH mutations. So and the, the reason is probably that this interferes with the epigenome of the, of the cell. It interferes with changes in DNA methylation and also in histone methylation. And this was shown, in fact, um, based on TCGA. So one of the big advantages of TCGA was the, the multi-platform analysis, that the same tumor sample was being profiled by DNA mutation, methylation, gene expression, microRNA, DNA copy number, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, you had this ability to look for correlations, to see, okay, if something was mutated with gene X, what other properties did it have in, in, in some of the other uh, molecular platforms? And so we did this. And we found in glioblastoma that only a subset of these patients, similar to what Vogelstein's lab had found, only a small subset of these patients had IDH mutations. Uh, but what, and that's, that's fine. That's confirmatory. But what was interesting is that those patients, if you look at their methylation, the, the global DNA methylation, they had a completely different DNA methylation pattern compared to the rest, the IDH wild-type glioblastomas. And so what we found is that that uh, IDH mutations um, alter the epigenome, and we called it uh, we called it a SIMP phenotype. Colon cancer had it, had its own SIMP. We called it G SIMP, uh, glioma SIMP, and it's it's held true to this day that IDH mutations are defined by um, alterations in the epigenome, and that can be resolved by looking at changes in in DNA methylation. And in fact, this this was correlative. These were on, on human tumor samples. It was subsequent, subsequently shown um, at Memorial Sloan Kettering. Um, Tim Chan and uh, Craig Thompson, et cetera, showed that if you actually introduce a mutant IDH, the, the so-called 132H mutation, uh, R132H, introduce that into glioma stem cells, you can turn those glioma stem cells, you can reorganize their epigenome, and, and um, so it's, it's actually causal. Um, uh, in terms of, 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 of this particular change. So really this one um, molecule, IDH1 mutation, has, has changed the way we think about gliomas. This is the old Vogelgram of gliomas where we have uh, on, on, on the left pro the progressive from lower grade to glioblastoma. On the right, the de novo or primary GBM. This was how we thought of it for, for many years. And it's really IDH status that, that puts a really a thick wall 
between these two kinds of glioma, where the IDH mutant gliomas are the progressive gliomas that, that go from low-grade astrocytoma oligodendroglioma into glioblastoma, and the IDH wild-type tumors um, are, are here on the right. So it really defines two kinds of glioma that look the same under the microscope, um, but, but are, are, are very different. We talked a little bit about TCGA that was first uh, really, I think, pioneered in the glioblastoma. Based on the success of that, it was moved into lower-grade gliomas, the, the astrocytomas and oligoastrocytomas that I, that I talked about. Uh, we gathered about 250 or so cases that had uh, most of, of, of this multi-platform uh, sequencing or profiling, and again, tried to do this multi-platform analysis to ask, how can we classify these tumors, and how does the molecular classification relate to histology and, and clinical outcome? And so the answer uh, is really shown in this, this, this uh, which was the final figure for this paper, which, again, had a, a, just over 250 diffuse lower-grade gliomas. And the question is, what's the first cut? Is it, is it diagnosis, astro versus oligo? What is it? The first cut uh, was, in fact, whether or not the tumor was IDH mutated or not. And so the, the, the first cut of these tumors was, was IDH mutation, which occurred in, in um, um, 60 or 70 percent of these tumors, which is consistent with the literature, or, or not, or IDH wild-type tumors. If the tumors were IDH mutant, there was a second cut. Whether they were so-called 1P19Q co-deleted, that, that's a molecular signature of oligodendroglioma, or were they intact or not co-deleted for 1P19Q, uh, so-called molecular astrocytoma. And then the question was, well, what are some of the other molecular features of these three subsets, the co-deleted IDH mutant, the, the non-co-deleted IDH mutant, or the IDH wild type? It um, turns out that the IDH wild type, many of these tumors, even though they were called lower-grade glioma, uh, grade 2 or grade 3, astrocytoma, oligodendroglioma, these had alterations that are reminiscent of what we see in IDH wild type glioblastoma, alterations in P10, alterations in CDKN2A, amplifications of EGFR, TERT promoter mutations, et cetera. So these, even though they were called, and they, by all accounts, by expert neuropathologists in some cases, were called lower-grade gliomas, molecularly these can be defined as, as glioblastomas on a biologic basis. And then the lower-grade gliomas that, that, are, that were IDH mutant um, had these particular alterations um, that, um, that, that are shown here. Non-codeleted patients almost always had P53 mutations, ATRX mutations, Codeleted patients often had terpermoter mutations in other, other genes, like CAC, which is a tumor, tumor suppressor gene on chromosome 19Q. So um, the, the, the question was, how well did histology do? And, the, and not so well. So one uh, uh, finding from the TCGA analysis is that histology was only a rough approximation of, of, these, of these three subtypes. And, and uh, th this, this analysis, I'll show you another way of how this analysis was done that really shows how the, the genomic profiling really converged onto these simple molecular markers to identify uh, clinical subtypes. Here's some of the profiling that was done, DNA copy number, DNA methylation, microRNA um, uh, profiling, uh, mRNA profiling, and this, these were all converged in, into a so-called cluster of cluster analysis, where the um, cluster results of each of the individual profiles was then mapped, and then a second-order clustering was done according to that mapping of the individual clusters, so-called cluster of cluster analysis. This is, in, in some sense, unsupervised. 
So without prior knowledge of, 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 of the particular molecular phenotype of, of any of the tumors. And so this is the result of the cluster of cluster analysis, where these tumors were clustered according to these four dis disparate molecular platforms. And you can see here, uh, if you look at the molecular subtype band here and the colors, that it's not perfect, but it does a pretty good job of separating the, 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 the tumors according to whether or not they were IDH wild type, IDH mutant uh, cotyledon, the so-called molecular oligodendroglioma, and IDH mutant uh, non-cotyledon molecular astrocytoma. So an unsupervised analysis using multiple platforms, when all mashed together, recapitulates pretty well um, our thinking of, of how we classify these tumors using these simple molecular markers. And so this, this is the, the, really the, the summary, of that, summary of that. And the, the other take-home message from this analysis is that the, the, is that the tumors that were called oligoastrocytoma, here's, here's the histology band here, and you can see it's not so clean that the, the, what the neuropathologist called the tumor doesn't, doesn't map so well to the molecular, molecular subtype. And that was especially true for this mixed oligoastrocytoma where no molecular correlate despite a, a lot of searching, could be identified. And because of this result, the WHO, uh, when it met um, uh, uh, two years ago to sort of update the classification, de-emphasized oligoastrocytoma, and it, it will soon be sort of dis disappearing from how we classify these tumors, simply because there's no biologic basis for this um, for the sensing, it's given rise to um, you know papers with with dramatic titles: "Farewell to Oligoastrocytoma," et cetera, et cetera. So, um, so that, that that I think is is one way we can use this molecular analysis to help us um, and, and understand and classify um, these these. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about, um, about one of the platforms, uh, DNA methylation. Okay, so this, this is the, um, the, from, from this the TCGA paper that looked at, at the 250 or so lower-grade gliomas mapped by, um, by DNA methylation using the, the, the so-called Illumina 450K, uh, 450,000 uh, 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 probe um, uh, array. And so the first thing you can do is on the left is this is normal brain. So these, were, these are probes selected for, for not being methylated in normal brain. And then you can see on the right here uh, these tumors that have the band of yellow and, and, and red. These are the, the GSIMP positive. These are the IDH mutant uh, tumors that have the, the, the methylated phenotype. And so you can see um, the other molecular alterations that, that map to these to these uh, particular methylation subtypes. Again, the three subtypes that we talked about, the co-deleted IDH mutant, the, uh, the IDH mutant non-co-deleted that are P53 mutated, and then the IDH wild type. And so as we talked about, many of these IDH wild type tumors that, that, are, that do not have the SIMP phenotype um, could be considered pre-GBMs, pre-molecular glioblastomas would be another name. But one thing that was, that was uh, I think, noted but, but really not dismissed in this initial analysis, and, and I was partly responsible for not, not emphasizing it at the time, was this very thin band here, the so-called methylation M1 or methylation 1 subgroup that really didn't fit with anything. They, they were IDH wild type, but they weren't pre-GBMs. They didn't have the molecular alterations of GBMs. And the question was, what are these tumors? Th these are tumors, again, that were sent in to TCJ from 
big cancer places as diffuse gliomas. And we didn't really have, you know, there's a small percentage of these cases, but we, we, we didn't know quite where they fit at the time. And so what happened was, um, after this paper was published, uh, more cases came in. It was combined with the glioblastoma TCGA analysis into a much larger group of over 1,000 cases. And now we could start with strength in numbers. We could start, start looking at these things a, a little bit more closely. Here, here is the result the graphical abstract of this sort of uh, combined uh, TCJ glioma analysis, where on top here you have the IDH mutant tumors, and down here the IDH um, wild-type tumors. And um, you can see here that there's, uh, in the Kaplan-Meier curve, some differences in outcome of the patients with IDH mutant tumors, um, which, which is interesting, because even though all, overall IDH mutant tumors do better, there's looks like there's a subgroup that didn't. In the IDH wild-type tumors, again, these are, these are the, most of them are the molecular GBMs, but again, there's a small subtype of these patients who don't behave like GBMs. So it's a bit more complicated than, 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 than simply calling IDH wild-type tumors molecular GBMs. And so I'm going to show you a little bit about, about some of that analysis, especially with this M1 methylation phenotype and what we found out about that. So um, here's a little bit about, about uh, more on, on the methylation profiles that relate to the um, IDH mutant tumors first. And so this group here. And so these are all the GSIM positive cases. But w when you compare GSIM positive and GSIM negative, all you see is that big difference. But when you actually look, sort of focus on the IDH mutant tumors only, you can see a range of methylation. And so here's an analysis of uh, what we called at the time the G-SIMP low versus the G-SIMP high tumors. A minority, 10% of these tumors, were, had a lower level of methylation compared to the majority of, the, of these tumors. And that's, again, it's a pretty picture, so what? And it was, it was, it was matched a, uh, to some extent by the uh, mRNA analysis. But again, sort of, so what? It, 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 you know, it, it, what's the meaning, the, the, the meaning of this? And the meaning of it was that these patients here, the patients that had the G-SIMP low phenotype, these patients had a much worse outcome compared to the G-SIMP high patients. And so uh, the, what we're doing is we're now separating the IDH mutant from the IDH wild-type tumors, looking at the IDH mutant tumors only, and seeing some molecular heterogeneity within IDH mutant gliomas. Again, they have a better outcome in general than IDH wild-type tumors, but it's not always the case. And so there's now an active study as to the relationship between this G-SIMP low phenotype and other clinical parameters in, in IDH wild-type lower-grade gliomas. What about the IDH uh, sorry, IDH mutant lower-grade gliomas. What about the IDH wild-type lower-grade gliomas? We talked about most of them being um, molecular GBMs, but, but there, there was this nagging M1 uh, uh, methylation phenotype of these tumors. What were those? And so th this number of cases was expanded, and then it was compared to another kind of glioma that it was not included in the analysis. That, that's not a diffuse glioma, and that's called a pilocytic astrocytoma. The, even though these are called astrocytomas, they're completely different on a biologic basis from the diffuse gliomas. Pilocytic astrocytomas are considered benign tumors that are potentially curable um, if they can be surgically resected. And so it turns out that, that this M1 group of diffuse gliomas, as histologically defined, from a methylation perspective and from a molecular perspective, many of these have BRAF uh, alterations that pilocytics have, et cetera, et cetera. These, these tumors actually were on a molecular level 
uh, polycytic astrocytomas. And so the significance of this is, number one, th th these patients probably didn't ha never had diffuse gliomas. And number two, th these cases had a diagnosis of diffuse glioma, again, sent in by neuropathologists such as myself into TCGA as diffuse gliomas, but, but only through molecular analysis can we actually, in some sense, correct the diagnosis to something like pilocytic astrocytoma. And, you know, I, I think more and more we're going to be hopefully incorporating some of these kinds of analysis to get, reduce the subjectivity, reduce the diagnostic error that we see. IDH mutation that we've talked about can be, can be very helpful in, in that regard as a, as, as a, not just a, sort of a molecular marker that defines a subgroup of gliomas, but to, to really help us correctly classify these cases. Um, for example, IDH mutation, it, it, since, it's, since it's a mutation, does not occur in theory in normal, uh, normal cells or in cells that are not, in general, uh, diffuse gliomas. And so can we use that? And, and th there are some tools available to us. There's a, a uh, with, the, with the R132H mutation being very common, a clever neuropathologist in Germany, Andreas von Daimling, developed an antibody that sees that mutant antigen, works very well in, in our pathology specimens, and IDH, the R132H mutation, it accounts for the majority, not all, but the majority of IDH mutations that are seen in, in, um, in gliomas. And so we can, we can uh, use that, for example, in this panel of, of six different cases here that all, in, in some ways, um, have features that would at least raise the possibility of oligodendroglioma. If, you, if a neuropathologist looks at any one of these cases, they, they, he or she would for sure include oligodendroglioma in their differential diagnosis, the so-called fried egg effect. You've got a perinuclear a nucleus and then a white space around it, perinuclear halo. And um, so the question is, are all these oligodendrogliomas or not? And you can use things like the presence of IDH mutation to help you. And it turns out that of these six oligodendroglioma lookalikes, only two of them are oligodendroglioma uh, being positive for, um, for the IDH mutation. The other four are, um, are other things that, that can, on occasion, look like an, oligo, like an oligodendroglioma under an H&E. Again, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to show is, is the imprecision of the H&E in terms of specificity of diagnosis. So here's a pilocytic astrocytoma, which again is a, not a diffuse glioma. These are uh, some other December plastic neuropathial tumor, ependymoma, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we can use these molecular markers not just sort of to help us think about them biologically, but actually help us in the clinic to more correctly classify these tumors. Here's an example of some brain tissue that pretty much no one would be able to call diffuse glioma, but only um, you know, with these tools you can identify the, the rare infiltrating glioma cells um, in, in, in this specimen. So how can we apply this? So the WHO uh, uh, brain tumor group came together to update um, the classification of these tumors and try to include where, where possible, some of these molecular markers into the classification. The so-called WHO Blue Book um, it was, that's been uh, developed over the past 20 or, 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 or 30 years. And what, what changed in the WHO of, of the 2016 update was that we were able to uh, convince the, the, the group of pathologists to include molecular markers not as an adjunct to, to a diagnosis, because in, in the past, an oligodendroglioma was a defined as something that had fried egg artifact 
in, on the H&E. But now we could say oligodendroglioma, not just, sure, it's got the Friday artifact, but it also has IDH mutation and 1P19Q codilation. So it actually entered into the definition of the entity rather than, rather than as, an, as an adjunct to the entity. Here's part of the WHO classification of brain tumors. There's about 100 different entities that, that occur in and around the brain, and many of these were clinically relevant um, uh, we were able to include some of the molecular alterations that, um, that uh, could, could, could be incorporated. And the, the, the concept is, uh, it becomes a tricky one with the WHO because the, the, the W and WHO is world, so it, it needs to, to make sure to have a classification that, that can be used anywhere in the world um, or on, on any specimen, whether or not that specimen can be assessed by a particular marker such as IDH or 1P19Q, whether the tissue might be too small, whether the te technology may, may not be available at that particular laboratory, et cetera. So the concept was to include sort of, sort of a layer diagnosis that includes um, the uh, histologic grade, the histologic class, the H&E classification, but also the molecular information and then uh, in integrating the molecular information into an integrated diagnosis that includes the uh, histologic and the, the, the molecular. And the, but the WHO was um, also uh, cognizant of the fact that, again, not all specimens can be profiled in the way that you would like, and so they had a fallback position of ensuring that those cases could be called a certain thing using a so-called NOS or not otherwise specified uh, a category. And so it's almost a two-tiered system, a system where, where one, one ideally has the, the molecular information and can make an integrated diagnosis, but if not, one's still able to make a, make a diagnosis, almost using the old, the old system. So that, that was the, the workaround that was used in the new WHO classification. And here's some of how that looks. Here are the, the anaplastic astrocytomas that can either be called anaplastic astrocytoma IDH mutant, anaplastic astrocytoma IDH wild type, if you can get IDH status, or... NOS if, if, that, if that molecular analysis is not available. Okay, um, I, I want to talk again a little bit about DNA methylation, dig deeper into, I think, its potential usefulness as a, as a classification tool. We've seen a little bit about how it might be useful in terms of being able to, in some sense, correct our diagnosis or at least, um, at, at least cause us to revise our diagnosis in some cases. And I think it has some um, remarkable attributes um, as, as, an, as a potential adjunct in, in, in how pathologists do their work. So when you think about it, um, uh, epigenetics is, is, can be a, a very useful thing in determining cell state or cell type of a particular individual because for, for a couple of reasons. Because differentiation can be fairly stable, uh, especially epigenetic, um, epigenetic memory. And tumor, it turns out tumor methylation, e even though it can, it can change um, in the neoplastic process, is relatively stable, especially compared to some of the other molecular um, uh, platforms that we use, such, such as RNA, RNA profiling. And so here's, here's just one example of many tissues that one can imagine came from the same patient. In, in theory, they all have the same uh, structure of uh, sequence of, of DNA. How can we get such vast different histologies 
um, from uh, the same DNA sequence. You know, one answer would be uh, epigenetics uh, is regulating the differentiation of these cells. So can we use this to our advantage? Tumors are named according to the presumed cell of origin of that tumor. So if one knew um, the methylation pattern of a, of a liver cell or a neuron or skin or peripheral nerve or kidney, what have you, um, then one could, in theory, re reverse engineer a system where you could profile that tumor and say, well, this looks like this particular cell of origin, and in, in, in so doing, one can hopefully name that tumor more accurately. So as I mentioned, I think DNA methylation could be an untapped area for, for molecular classification, and I'll show you some data that would support this particular uh, uh, statement. It has some convenient attributes we've talked about. It's a surrogate for cell of origin, which is really a basis of how pathologists name tumors. Astrocytomas are presumed to be derived from astrocytes, oligodendrogliomas from oligodendrocytes, et cetera. Uh, we also know that there's some tumors that look the same under the microscope, We've already talked about IDH mutant and IDH wild type uh, um, gliomas that look that are indistinct, indistinguishable in the microscope, but they can be further defined by methylation patterns. Medulloblastoma, another brain tumor, is another example of a tumor that is that has been refined by the use of subtypes, and methylation is is one way to do that. It's a, as I mentioned, a very, fairly stable marker of cell state, and it's it works well in in the in, in the harsh things that pathologists do to tissue, formal fixation and paraffin embedding. I mentioned um, this is one tool to measure global uh, methylation. This is an old slide. Uh, the 450K has now been upgraded to uh, almost double 850K uh, feature um, uh, array, but it, it's a very convenient way to, to do DNA methylation profiling. And so here's um, sort of one figure from uh, th this represents um, a, a lot of work from a lot of people. It was actually published in Nature last week as an article, uh, and um, it was it was really driven by uh, researchers at uh, the in Heidelberg, Germany, at the DKFZ. Uh, an individual named Stefan Fister and, and his colleagues. I was part of this work, but he he was the driver, and he had an idea that was, I can use DNA methylation as an adjunct to pathologic diagnosis. And so the, 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 it was a very methodical um, uh, approach where tumor samples were taken that, that were, were with a known diagnosis, glioblastoma, astrocytoma, ependymoma, meningioma, et cetera, et cetera. And once a certain number of tumors had been profiled with that, with that histologic diagnosis, then a methylation signature was mapped so that in terms of how it dis distinguishes itself from all the other samples that, are, that have been profiled. And they gathered several thousand methylation profiles from the variety of brain tumors that, that were accumulated, both in-house and also they, they became a, a reference center um, for um, outside people wanting help with their diagnosis. And they developed a classifier, a methylation classifier for brain tumors. And, and the TSNE plot of something like principal components is shown here with the, the, the 80 or so entities that were defined um, by methylation. And um, the, 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 this essentially recapitulating what I said, an algorithm was, was created on, on 1,000 or so samples. And then a new set of samples was, was, was evaluated to test the, um, how well this model did relative to the standard of care of, of, of pathology. And the answers were, were, were really quite interesting and, and, and quite quite. Surprising. 
in, you know, he, here's sort of the, one of the bottom line results of this work, and that is that if they took a thousand or so cases, and, the, and each case was then, um, you know, analyzed by, by a pathologist in the normal way, H&E, immunohistochemistry, et cetera, et cetera, and given a diagnosis, that case was then sent for methylation. The methylation result came back, and the question was, did the diagnosis change? What was the concordance between the two? And when there was discordance, how often did the pathologist change the diagnosis based on the methylation result? And the answer is that in 12% of cases, the diagnosis was changed. Now, again, that's a minority, but when you think about it, for, for a laboratory test, you, you, you sort of want accuracy greater than 88%. You, you, you want certainty. If you're a patient, you want to know with certainty what your diagnosis is. And, and these were all comers. These were cases, most of which were not controversial. They were not difficult. And so when you think about it, you know, this is a big number. 12% of cases being reclassified based on one molecular test, I think, um, is something that, that is, 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 is fairly, fairly significant. Um, but of course, you know, here, here's the algorithm, standard pathology diagnosis, methylation array, 88% of the time concordant, no change in diagnosis, 12% of the time change, change in diagnosis. But then you can ask, what was the clinical uh, significance of that? You know, what, what was the change in diagnosis significant? It wasn't always, but many times, many times it was. Sometimes it resulted in an upgrading of the tumor from grade two to grade three or grade two to grade four, et cetera, or, or downgrading of the tumor, grade four to grade two. And since patients are often treated according to both the name of the tumor and the grade of the tumor, uh, in many cases, um, the, the, the change in diagnosis has, has um, uh, a clinical significance. Uh, clinical signif significance. I mean, for example, here you can see a pilocytic astrocytoma, benign tumor. You know, patients given that diagnosis changed to a diffuse midline glioma, uh, histone H3, K27 mutant. This is a highly lethal tumor. So, so there, there, were, there were some clinically significant changes um, uh, identified through this methylation analysis. And so one can imagine, again, these were all comers. These were consecutive case series. One can imagine that if one restricted one's analysis to the difficult to classify cases, that the, um, that the, the utility of something like DNA methylation would, would be much higher. And there were some other interesting things that are emerging from simply profiling a lot of these tumors and, and looking at some of the methylation uh, results. And so here's one example of that. Here's, a, here's the group of glioblastoma um, here, GBM mesenchymal subtype, uh, et, et, et cetera, et cetera. But here, here were a couple cases that were, although they were close to GBM, they weren't quite in the main mass of GBMs in terms of, of clustering with, with glioblastoma. And so is that artifact? Who knows? But, but you can look at the, now these tumors, and here, here's the histology for these two tumors. They have sort of unusual histology. But then you can look at other things. DNA methylation um, has the advantage of also being a surrogate for DNA. You, you can derive DNA copy number off of the same array as DNA methylation. And interestingly, both, both of these two tumors, these two here that are sort of off below the, the main mass of GBM, had a very unusual molecular finding of, of amplification on chromosome 6Q, whether, which doesn't, does not generally occur in glioblastoma. So wh whether this is a new entity, unknown, but it's just intriguing that when using a molecular technique in an unbiased way, one can potentially identify entities that may not have been appreciated uh, simply by looking at, um, at, at H&Es. 
And so, you know, here's some of the clinical implications, as I, as I mentioned, for 800, and so, 800 or so samples, three-fourths of them um, were sort of concordant. The pathologist called it GBM. The methylation called it, called it the same thing. So that, 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 that was all fine. But there were another subset of cases where, again, there was some clinically significant changes, either a revision in diagnosis, uh, either being upgraded or downgraded, uh, in terms of the WHO grade in, in a substantial portion of cases. And th there were also an, another su subset of cases where the methylation classifier didn't map really well to a known histopathological diagnosis. And so that becomes the question. With, as more and more of these methylation data is accumulated, new, potentially new entities are being um, identified that um, really, again, don't map by histology, but biologically um, may become new entities in future WHO um, classifications. Another thing that, that has occurred with this whole um, methylation um, um, algorithm, a random force algorithm, is that it's become publicly available so that one can do one's own methylation profiling on a particular tumor type and simply download the file, the, the, the IDAT file, onto a website. This is the website. And a few minutes later, you get an email with your classification. You get a, a list of probabilities, and that probably, you know, related to the, the, the methylation score based on that particular sample. And the concept, you know, uh, pathologists are often asked, well, is this going to, am I sort of working myself out of a job? And the, the, the question becomes not that, that these molecular techniques are going to replace um, how we do our work, but it's really more of an adjunct. Um, no test is perfect. Um, and it, it really becomes the integration of what we know, the histology, maybe sequencing for something like IDH, and then integrating that with, you know, with, with things like methylation to, um, you know, in a way that makes sense um, so, so that we can um, almost, it almost serves like a checklist function. When you have a difficult case, you're thinking of a differential diagnosis, and you want to make sure you've thought of everything. And something like an unbiased uh, uh, approach, such as DNA methylation, can, can help you make sure that you haven't forgotten um, any possibility for these entities. So here, here's, here's, here's one example of, of, a, of a case. This is a case that no one has a problem with, oligodendroglioma. We've seen, we've seen this before. Uh, we have our nice 1P19Q uh, co deletion. So we, we've, we've got that result from the methylation and the classifier uh, is concordant. So th this is a case without, without an issue. But what about this case? Um, in, in my, as Mark mentioned, I was in Toronto and until recently. Here was a case we received in Toronto from an outside pathologist. It was, it was um, called glioblastoma. We looked at it. We thought it was a pilocytic astrocytoma. But you have a classic now problem in pathology where you have one pathologist says one thing, another one says the other. You, you don't really know who's right. I mean, um, there's really no sort of ar final arbiter to decide, you know, what, who's right. And so you can use things like methylation. So, so this patient was, was getting combined um, uh, temozolomide radiation and had been told that they have a, a, a very uh, significant um, uh, diagnosis of glioblastoma. We looked at it again. Although it has microvascular proliferation, didn't have other features of, of glioblastoma. Um, we did methylation, very clean copy number, which is never seen in glioblastoma. The classifier puts it out as a, as a, as a pilocytic tumor. And so, you know, we were able on this particular case to give good news to this patient and ask the um, neuro-oncologist to, um, to not treat radiation 
not treat the patient with radiation and, and, and temozolomide. And there's other, other examples of that um, that, that, that we see um, in, in, in our daily practice. I want to talk a little bit about um, another tumor type uh, that we see in, in neuropathology. And in fact, it's probably it, it's the most common of the, of the primary brain tumors that, that neurosurgeons um, uh, have the occasion to uh, send us tissue on, and that tumor is meningioma. Um, so here's a sort of a look of, of, of all primary brain tumors, the frequency, and here's GBM. 15% of primary brain tumors are, are GBM, and more than double um, uh, th that number are, are meningiomas. So meningioma is not an intrinsic brain tumor. It's the covering on the meninges, but it's a, it's a fair, among primary brain tumors, it's the most common. And it's fairly understudied, uh, you know, in part because it's not as lethal as glioblastoma. Uh, many, many of these patients um, are cured by surgery, but not all of them. And um, for that reason, it's not, a, not as well studied, although more is being understood about meningiomas um, a, a, as we go forward. Um, as pathologists are prone to do, they name these tumors according to how they look, uh, again, on, on an H&E. There's a dizzying array of subtypes. I can't remember them all. Um, of, especially of grade one meningiomas, here they are, and no one really understands the clinical significance of looking at these uh, at these various histologic patterns in terms of the grade, except for a few examples: the tumors that look like chordoma, that are clear cell, etc., or tumors that are rhabdoid-looking might have a higher grade. Um, and th these are named according based on how they look. But um, in many of these grade one tumors, the clinical significance of these patterns is not clearly identified. The other problem that we have is that the way we grade these tumors is, again, subjective. Um, and it's based on things that, that, that can have inter-observer variability. Here's grade two tumors, meningiomas, um, have between four and 19 mitoses per high power field. And the, you know, high power fields, that's a whole other thing. Uh, but but uh, the, the concept is that, well, I mean, if you just get to 20 mitoses, now you have a grade 3 tumor. And mitoses can be fairly difficult to identify with certainty in some tumors. So again, there's subjectivity here. As, as a group, grade does a reasonable job at predicting recurrence-free survival. Here's grade 1. Here's recurrence-free survival, Kaplan-Meier, grade 1, grade 2, grade 3. So as, as a population, uh, it does separate patients into recurrence-free survival groups, but it's, it's not good enough to define care for the individual patient. And it really gets uh, to, uh, important in the grade 2 patients where the decision is whether or not that patient should be watched or given adjuvant, adjuvant radiation. And so how can we um, – here's one example. Uh, here, here's a, a pathology look at patients from a clinical trial. And the compared to the outside diagnosis, the central reviewer, Ari Perry, who's a very well-known meningioma neuropathologist, among other things, had a concordance rate of 87%. Again, 87% is not, nothing to sneeze at, but for a clinical test, you sort of want a test that gives you better than a 13% um, uh, disagreement. And so the question is, can, can we improve our ability to predict recurrence-free survival using molecular techniques? And um, so here, going back to uh, the, uh, the principal components plot of the methylation um, analysis, here are, here are the meningiomas. So they, 
when you compare them to all other brain tumors, they, they cluster in, in, a, in a separate group. But now if we, if we start looking at meningiomas in isolation, there is a bit of substructure here. There's maybe a, a, a couple of groups here. And again, the question is, is there any relevance to, um, to subtyping uh, when one looks at a group of, of, of meningiomas? And so we, we, we looked at that. And um, you know, to make a long story short, using unsupervised methods on methylation data, we were able to find that methylation um, uh, could uh, predict uh, recurrence-free survival. Here's a training set uh, that, that we did on about 80 or so cases, and we developed a model and applied that to another 50 or so cases and validated that, that DNA methylation might divide um, meningiomas into different uh, survival groups. This was then, um, here's the DNA copy number that shows um, consistent. The, the, the tumors with, with the aggressive uh, methylation phenotype had a, a more um, DNA uh, gains and losses than, than the ones that did not. And th this was then re uh, confirmed by our German colleagues in, in Heidelberg using a larger set of, of tumors, um, again using the same platform, finding two groups of meningiomas, group A and group B, further subdivided into, into six, um, six subgroups. Um, and since time is short, I will get to the, get to the point here, which is that um, here's the, the various methylation groups that were identified, and you can see the Kaplan-Meier curve showing pr progressive difference in recurrence-free survival and so also some molecular difference, differences uh, between tumors that were classified by, by DNA methylation. And so we're, we're now developing an algorithm uh, that can be used to hopefully predict uh, in, in conjunction with, um, with clinical features such as center resection and tumor grade, et cetera, the, um, the, the uh, likelihood of recurrence in these cases. And so here's the comparison of the standard pathology diagnosis, the grade one, along with its many, many subtypes, grade two and grade three. Uh, this is the original pathology diagnosis, and, and then the revised, met the, the, the methylation subgroup, and you can see that Although, you know, in general, the grade one tumors went into the benign groups and the grade two tumors went into the intermediate groups, there were some discrepancies. There's some grade two tumors that are going into the benign groups, some grade one tumors going into the malignant groups, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's, it's this integration of the, of the uh, H&E morphology with the molecular that could be, potentially be used to help us refine um, how, how these things um, how, how, how these things are doing, and so as, as I mentioned, we're, we're develop, in, in the midst of develop, uh, developing an actual classifier uh, using a random force algorithm. Here's an example of one patient um, that was put in the classifier, and this is, this is the recurrence rate that this patient would be predicted to have based on on the methylation profile. Here's another patient that has a different um, prediction. And in fact, in these two examples, these patients both had grade two or atypical meningiomas, but had uh, a different uh, cl clinical outcomes. And so um, how can we take advantage of that uh, in a more clinically meaningful way? Uh, it turns out, as, as, as you all know, DNA is being spit into the blood all the time, and we can detect things like uh, ctDNA mutations, et cetera. But one can also use that DNA to, to one's advantage if one believes that methylation might be important. And so uh, we've uh, started uh, looking at DNA methylation in the patient's CT DNA and have found uh, reasonable concordance. We, we can di diagnose a, a meningioma now in a patient um, preoperatively. 
um, uh, based on the ctDNA um, from the tumor. And we're, we're trying to integrate that now into our algorithm of predicting recurrence-free survival so we might be able to help the surgeon uh, predict preoperatively whether or not that patient would be predicted to have an aggressive or not aggressive meningioma and potentially to guide that uh, the, the surgeon's uh, aggressiveness or lack thereof in terms of, of, of resecting that tumor. We can also use that to our advantage with, with, with gliomas. Gliom as, I've, as I've shown, gliomas, have, uh, based on IDH mutation status, have a great difference in their methylation profiles. We're able to tell the surgeon if they see a, a, a low-grade lesion on the scan, so-called T2 flare lesion, we're able to at least get an idea of whether that, uh, whether that lesion represents an IDH mutant glioma by identifying that dramatic change in methylation. And so um, some of that, some of that um, I think we're moving forward with, with, um, uh, with the use of, of adjuncts like DNA methylation to help us help pathologists really do their work in terms of understanding and classifying tumors. We want to move into more precise methods of looking at methylation, such as single-cell methylation. We've all probably heard of single-cell RNA sequencing, which is getting fairly well-developed. One can also look at uh, methylation patterns of single cells, and I think that's going to be the next step in terms of, of, of precision. Sometimes when one, one profiles the bulk tumor, it contains things like neoplastic and non-neoplastic cells. One could, in theory, distinguish the neoplastic and non-neoplastic cells um, by using a, something like a single cell analysis and also do additional things that are not uh, are not doable in bulk tumors, such as looking at tumor heterogeneity. What's, what's the, 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 the degree of heterogeneity on an epigenetic level among the neoplastic cells? And also, what's the composition of the non-neoplastic component in terms of stromal cells, inflammatory cells, uh, immune suppressor cells, et cetera, et cetera? And how does the microenvironment, how can that be uh, uh, sort of incorporated into how we understand and classify these tumors. And so um, I, th I think with some of these adjunct uh, methods that are being incorporated, I think we'll be able to, as pathologists, be able to um, classify things and reduce this diagnostic discordance that I, that I talked about. And, you know, um, uh, probably... Um, hopefully refine the way we understand um, and, and diagnose tumors. So essentially, this is the summary, really, that, that precision medicine requires a precise diagnosis, and I think some of these molecular tools are going to help us um, identify ways to more precisely um, uh, classify these tumors into clinically relevant subtypes. So with that, I'll thank you very much for your attention, and I'll be happy to uh, answer any questions. Colleagues here, it's pretty late, so I think we'll entertain one or two questions and then Ken can hang around and if there's time. I don't know the exact plans for going to the airport and um, chat further, but are there? I mean, it's an amazingly provocative um, talk, and I'm just wondering if there are any particular questions. I certainly have many. Paul? Uh, so, setting aside for a moment the fact that in some places in the world they can't do the same molecular testing that we have access to. I'd be interested in your thoughts on the grading system, because clearly we know that a grade 2 may do worse than a grade 4, depending on the molecular subtype. Yeah, um, so... Uh... It's a great question. It turns out the, the, the methylation signature is, is, is not a very good grading tool, is the honest truth. It's more of a cell of origin tool, so it, it, it can help you define whether that 
that is sort of an astrocyte, oligodendrocyte, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it, this particular tool is not very good at, once you've identified the cell type, to actually grade the tumor. So that, 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 that's an important limitation uh, of this. But you, you're right, that's a very, very, very good question. So let me ask, what's your impression, Paul, you might want to weigh in, how, how many people are now being tested for IDH that come with a potentially diffuse glioma? All of our patients. No, not here. I mean across the country. I think it's virtually ubiquitous now. Okay. Because I would think that that would be a really critical issue. Well, for the most common mutation, it's immunohistochemistry, and I think that's a little more readily available than some of the other things that we do. The, the issue comes up is when the immunohistochemistry is negative. That's the, I don't know, do you, if you'd like to comment on that? Um, uh, immunohistochemistry is going to be negative with the antibody that we currently have available in about 8% of cases where there is an IDH1 or IDH2 mutation that's different than what the antibody protects. But we always do the backup full, full you know, kind of full analysis to make sure we've, we've tested thoroughly IDH1, IDH2. Well, that's, that's good that you're doing that. But many centers don't do that, as you know. They, uh... I have a quick question. Okay. H&E pathology, standard histopathology for brain tumors, it was cut and dried 50 years ago. We kind of tweak it around the edges. But this is brand new. It's an evolution. Um, how far along the road do you think we are? Because before IDH1 came out, nobody thought much about it. And now we're hearing about methylation, other markers. You think there are still other novel markers out there lurking in the market? Well, I think we, we, I think a couple of things. I think we, we have to keep keep at it. We have to we have to keep looking, and also we, we uh, more needs to be done to evaluate the the uh, the clinical utility. I, I think something like DNA methylation might be good for isn't necessary for all cases, but maybe a subset of difficult to diagnose cases. It could help you resolve a differential diagnosis. It, it really tells you is it. Tumor A or tumor B. It really helps you resolve that differential. And so I think it, it, there's, there's going to be the, that kind of tool and other kinds of tools that are being, going to be adjuncts to help us resolve those difficult to diagnose cases, which are maybe a, what, 10 to 20 percent of, of cases that we see. Artie, one last question. One last question. Actually, along Quick the lines of what Dr. Hubbard just mentioned, uh, the same group uh, that was They've also looked at methylation for near 155 promoter region for grade three gliomas, and and somehow they found that there these promoters are more methylated in IDH1 Y-type grade three uh, anaplastic gliomas. Have you looked at that in any of the data? I haven't. I mean, I think. About a year and a half you know, I, I, I think this data is there for the mining to, to identify these, these changes. So I agree. Here's a fairly profound thought, though, I think, uh, that this provokes that for the general oncology office, uh, um, the general oncology uh, interest. I mean, we, we've known for four decades that the proper treatment has a better outcome if it's the if you're treating the proper diagnosis. So, I mean, if you take breast cancer treatment and you apply it to colon cancer, it doesn't work so well. Or, you know, and this is particularly true in leukemia where we've been able to subdivide them. As these diagnoses evolve, they're going to have to be clinical trials to find out what treatments work in what clinical diagnoses. I don't think, it doesn't take 
a lot of thought to figure out, well, there just can't be enough clinical trials to figure out all these different proper treatments for individual subgroups. So here's something, especially for the younger people, I think the next 20 years is sort of figuring out, all right, what are the key molecular issues that treatments need to uh, address? And so even if we have these wildly dispersed um, diagnostic groups, whether it's based on an artifact of fixation or whether it's based on a molecular uh, subtype, how can we group them in a homogeneously enough way that it makes sense conducting a clinical trial to find out what the optimal treatment for it is. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. That's going to be huge. And, uh, 